Ladies and gentlemen, I am thrilled to have one of the busiest men in the world with me, uh, Liam Robinson, who is the Labour leader of the Liverpool City Council. And, you know, the man is just into the job and you've got a job and a half. Liam, thank you for spending time with me. No, it's a complete pleasure. Thanks for asking me to do the podcast with you, Pete. Right. It's a job and a half. Did you realise before you got it? Yeah. What a job. Yeah, of course it is. But to me, it's, it's not a job, it's more than that. It's a vocation, actually. I'm, I'm a big believer that politics is a calling, it's not a career. And when you get the opportunity to do something as privileged as this, to sort of lead the city council and thus sort of lead the city, I'm very, very conscious that I'm doing something on behalf of half a million people that live in the city, but actually millions more across the wider region and across the world who look towards Liverpool as a beacon. So for me, it's a 24-7 vocation and I'm throwing my heart and soul into it. That said, uh, I'm not naive, eyes wide open. I knew exactly what I was getting myself into. Uh, to be honest, when people asked me to, to stand for it, that there's a lot of tough things going on within the City Council, but we will work our way through those because the potential of this city is absolutely phenomenal if we can make sure we do the right things. Interesting you say that. So we have the scandal, we've had the upheaval, outspoken, unpredictable, controversial. You're none of those. You're none of those. I, I will always do my very best. Some of the kind of pledges I've made to the people of the city are that this will all be about hard work, not fireworks. I think the city's crying out just for a bit of stability and actually knuckling down and getting stuff right. Not some of the pantomime that we've had at times in the, in the past. So I'm, I'm pretty kind of keen just to be dead straight down the line and kind of, yeah, just put all that hard work in because there is a lot we've got to do to fix the council. I could happily go through all that kind of in detail and chapter and verse, but the huge potential for this city that's massively unrecognised and untapped at times and actually kind of that's where I think it gets really exciting about what we can do to kind of continue to project our city on a global stage and actually kind of generate more jobs, more growth, more investment for local people here in Liverpool. We were a very dark city many years ago and to me, for me, 2008 was the turning point uh, with capital culture. Um, have you always been a politician? I've always been uh, a member of the Labour Party all my adult life. And in fact, kind of, even as a kid, uh, I was always quite politically aware. But my actual work background um, is within public transport. You know, kind of, I've worked across the country, mainly on the railway, mainly managing railway stations. So it was actually kind of a job at Lime Street Station that brought me to the city. So I like to think of myself as actually more a railwayman that's become a politician, but a lot of my mates will always see me as a bit more kind of politically active. Interesting you say that. Uh, and we won't go down this road, but I will mention one thing. I spent some time with uh, the, the police on the railways. And what appalled me was the amount of people think it's their God-given right to ride on the trains for nothing. Well, no, it's like anything that you, know, you get for what you pay. And at the end of the day, we can have a big debate about what is the right level of fares, because I think they're too high in this country and the way the railways are privatised is added into that. But they do need to be paid for. And buying your ticket properly is part of that. I think one of the things I'm very conscious of, having worked on railway stations morning, noon and night, you know, kind of tell you lots of stories about the night shift at Lime Street and other uh, parts of the, the country on the rail network, is that a lot of the people, 
people that tend to be causing crime and antisocial behaviour issues often don't have a ticket. So actually making sure that people have bought a proper ticket so the money goes back in to pay for the system also has additional benefits about making sure that those people that are kicking off don't tend to get near the trains. I'm sitting here with a grin on my face because I'm just realising you've taken me back to sleepers when you were a little boy. Because <laughs> 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 they had sleepers from Liverpool. You slept on the train yeah. in a bed, in a bunk bed, and then got off. Or that you you stayed at Euston Station for a couple of hours, yeah. then went to work. No, well, uh, to be honest, uh, at the start of my railway career, when I was working up in Scotland, I spent a few shifts working on the sleeper from Glasgow go down to London so kind of uh, yeah it's one of those things that kind of um, it's quite nostalgic but you never know actually with kind of the climate emergency you could credibly start to see sleeper trains come back on a, a longer distance uh, approach you know certainly that's what's happening across mainland Europe sleeper trains are starting to come back as part of the way that people can get around I'm not suggesting it would completely supplant air travel but you never know it could return back to the railways of Britain more than it does today. You heard it first with Liam, uh, who is the Labour leader of the Liverpool City Council. Uh, the job is a job and a half. We've had an awful lot of pain. We're not going to mention names. We're not going to mention anything. The mayor's gone. Mm. Um, where do you stand now without a mayor? Is it, was it something that was created? Was it necessary, in your opinion, looking back? Well, no, I was a councillor when we voted to adopt the mayoral model in the city council, and I voted for that. And I thought that was the right thing to do because it actually accessed some additional government funds and a bit more kind of power to help us move things forward, particularly on the basis of trying to get regional devolution started. I think I always had the view that once we got a regional morality, um, so you know, in the position that Steve Rotherham's got as mayor of the city region, that actually that was then the right time to try to move away from the city council having a mayor. Because one of the things I did see in my old role when I was chair of Mersey Travel is sometimes it would be a bit confusing as to who was the mayor of Liverpool because both the Metro mayor of the Liverpool City region and the mayor of Liverpool City Council both had Liverpool in the title. And particularly on a national footprint, sometimes you would find the government, and I'll be dead honest, Pete, I think sometimes deliberately would get it confused as to who was doing what role, trying to stir the pot uh, a little bit. So actually it was tidying that up and saying that now we've got one person known as the mayor of the Liverpool City region, I think it's tidied that up quite nicely. I think another element as well is I'm a real strong believer in teamwork, you know, all of us kind of pulling together. So having the ability to work hand in glove with the other leaders of the other councils across the region and Steve as our Metro Mayor, I honestly believe is the sort of the right way to do it and is a much stronger way of achieving what we need to achieve for the people of the city. Uh, I'm talking to Liam in a beautiful office looking over the River Mersey and if you hear a chinking noise, it is an identity bracelet on a magnificent <laughs> table. So just to let you know, but I am with the leader of the council, which is incredible. You mentioned Steve Rotherham. What's your relationship? with him I mean how do you work hand in hand or do you not have to work hand in no, hand no we, we definitely work hand in hand look I've known Steve for almost 20 years now uh, going back to a, a time when he was a, a member of the city council along with myself look I got on really really well with him um, our politics are pretty similar you know there's not many things we don't see 
exactly in the same way, which helped. For many, many years, worked extremely closely with him uh, when first he became mayor for uh, became MP for Walton. But then when he became mayor for the city region, in my role chair in Mersey Travel and leading on public transport issues, I actually used to have an office that was literally next door to his. So when the interconnecting door opened, I knew there was something up. Um, so for me, it's really, really important about continuing to have that really strong, close working relationship with Steve. So we speak most weeks on lots of different uh, issues. Um, and I think kind of he's doing a great job as mayor of the region. And I'm really pleased to be working with him in the new role as leader of the city council as well. We're going to have a national uh, election soon. Uh, that's absolutely inevitable. And I'm sure Labour are going to get in. Uh, I'll ask you, as uh, somebody who is a very strong Labour person from all your life, has the Labour Party lost its way? I wouldn't say the Labour Party's lost its way. I think the Labour Party continues to evolve and develop. I, I would always be the first to say that the Labour Party is not perfect. There's lots of ways over the years that I've always thought it could be better. But honestly, I've always believed it's the best vehicle for social change in this country. Um, we've gone through some quite turbulent times, um, particularly in the city. Uh, you know, some of the kind of challenges we've had within the local Labour Party. I think what... I'm more focused on is what can we deliver as the Labour Party within Liverpool for the people of the city, but how can we get a Labour government in that will continue to deliver a much better deal for the people of Liverpool? And I think we've got to keep on making that argument. And for me, that boils down to a number of different things. It's about getting things like a better funding settlement than we've had in the past. I'm not naive to think that the kind of economic situation across the country will mean there's loads of additional cash but surely the money that is spent needs to be spread much more fairly than it has been. And that should mean an improvement for the situation for us in Liverpool and those places that are more affluent, obviously not kind of having as much as they do today. I think that's fair. I also think there's huge opportunities to work hand in hand with the Labour government on some key projects we want to do across the city, particularly like building a lot more affordable housing for people that so many local families are crying out for. I think there's huge opportunities around that. But I think the final element, and this is where I get really excited, uh, Pete, is about the potential of devolution. I think the kind of there's huge potential in this country, but particularly in this city and our city region, about how if we had more devolution for us to make more decisions locally, we could do things that would be much better for the people of our region and really take us on to the next level. So I get dead enthusiastic about some of the policies the Labour Party's uh, bringing forward that would say that places like Liverpool City Region could request that any of the devolved powers that other parts of the United Kingdom have got. So what powers have Scotland got that would be relevant for us? What powers of the north of Ireland, Wales, London, other city regions got that we might not have that we would want? Because I think that's where there's huge potential, that if we can get some of those additional powers, we can do things that's much more focused and specific for the people of our city in a way that, because Britain has been so centralised for such a long time, often that one-size-fits-all approach doesn't fit right for Liverpool. Might fit right for other parts of the country, but isn't the right approach for us. So for me, it's those kind of key things that we need to be working hand-in-hand with the next Labour government on. A bit more money some key projects, but crucially, how we can get the right devolved settlement for the city. Now, you mentioned housing. Um, forget which government was in, um, just putting your 
political head-on without a party. Wasn't one of the big problems with housing. We built the houses but couldn't get the rent out of a lot of people. Weren't there, wasn't there a ginormous arrears bill? I think one of the things we've always got to kind of focus on is whether it's rent or whether it's other things like council tax. We've got to make sure we look after those people who genuinely can't afford to pay. Genuinely. Genuinely can't afford to pay. And I think we're always very proud as City Council. We do lots of things to help people that genuinely can't afford to pay, particularly things with like council tax relief. However, for those people that can afford but choose not to pay, that's a different kettle of fish. And we do have to pursue those people and make sure that we're getting the money in that is owed to us. So a very good example in very real uh, real time, um, Pete, is that historically the City Council has not been good at collecting the council tax and the business rates that's owed to it. We we take in about 83% of what's owed to us. That has to be much better, much better than. And that's it is a lot moment. of money. That's a lot of money. Um, we know for every percentage increase that can bring in an additional two million pounds to the city council's coffers. Particularly with the fact that council tax is a legal obligation to pay, we are now uh, starting to be much more focused in terms of how we pursue those people so we can bring that money back in to pay for local services that people are crying out for. Um, So it's a very, very important point that there's a huge difference between those people who can't afford to pay that we need to look after, but those people that are choosing not to pay for whatever reason, we've got to pursue that to get that cash in. I'm looking out the window. One of the most amazing things for me is this seaport. Mm. I was on the Empress of Canada when you weren't born. I can't believe I just said that. And sailed from here. We then lost our shipping. Southampton, we had problems with Southampton. We are the best place, one of the best places in the world Mm. where they walk off a ship into the city centre. It's incredible. Where are you up to with getting the facilities sorted? That's a very, very, very good point. And we are having a number of high-level meetings about how we can develop the cruise line terminal further. Can't give you an exclusive yet, but uh, some of the talks we've been happening, we've been having that hopefully will crystallise in a formal announcement in the not-too-distant future, genuinely can look at how we significantly increase the facility we've got. Because we know that kind of... Um, having the cruise liner terminal has been a huge boost to the city and the wider economy. It's actually been a huge boost to the cruise industry because it's not just people from Liverpool who are seeing cruising as an opportunity. People from right across the north of England have now got an opportunity to have cruise holidays and cruise employment in a way that previously Southampton and other southern ports just felt far too uh, far away. Um, so we're kind of really enthusiastic about what we can do next with that. And hopefully in the next few months, we'll be able to make a very positive announcement around that. Because we've got the Isle of Man new terminal, yeah. haven't we? We've got the Isle of Man new terminal. That's, again, something that we should rightfully shout about. It's the first time the Isle of Man government has taken ownership of some property that is not on the Isle of Man. So it really kind of shows uh, that kind of forward thinking from the Isle of Man government with a great new facility. We always should remember that Liverpool, both the seaport and the airport, is the main connection from mainland Great Britain to the Isle of Man. So a really important kind of local linkage there. So really looking forward to that new um, ferry terminal opening. I think the final kind of important part of the, the port jigsaw is actually about the extension of the port that is doing 
really well up at what is termed uh, Liverpool 2 up in Seaforth just over the boundary from us technically in Sefton but again the port of Liverpool is the main deep water port for the west of the British mainland that is a huge economic asset not just for our city and our region but the whole of the UK and the fact to see the kind of port experience in the renaissance that it is and its huge potential to grow gives us a really strong unique economic asset that many other parts of the country many other parts of Europe and the world can't necessarily say so getting our maritime heritage back as part of our future is absolutely fantastic. Liam in simple terms because I am stupid and an awful lot of people will be listening will agree with me over this I don't understand what happened about the inspectors and why they're here and I believe it's costing us a vast amount of money can you explain in simple terms roughly what's happened okay uh, and you're certainly not stupid uh, Pete and one of the things that always amazes me about many many people across Liverpool is how well attuned to local issues that they are actually you get a much greater kind of political discourse in this city than you sometimes do in other places um, but in simple terms to answer the question, because of some of the issues that happened in the council a couple of years ago, um, you know, we, we obviously know about kind of some of the arrests that happened. Um, it led to the government sending inspectors to look at the way the council operated and the way that things were done. That led to a pretty um, difficult report to read, and I'm being very polite when I, I say that, um, led that was authored by the lead inspector, a fellow called Max Caller, which basically pointed out how there were a number of parts within the council where we hadn't been operating in the best of ways. And I'm saying that simplistically and diplomatically. That led to the government deciding to send government commissioners in that we do have to pay for. They are five senior people with lots of very significant public sector experience, um, but obviously that does come at a cost. Um, their role is to oversee much of what the City Council is doing and continue to report back to the Secretary of State to make um, their kind of... to give their advice uh, on whether the government intervention in the city can end. Um, in terms of where we're practically up to, we've made some good progress over the past two years, but I'm not going to be kind of flowering this in the slightest peak when I say there's still a hell of a lot more we've got to do. I'm deliberately working very closely uh, with them because I take the view that if we've got five senior public sector individuals that we're paying for, let's get our money's worth from that. And on a personal level, both individually and collectively, I actually find them pretty helpful and lots of kind of, I've got lots of helpful advice for us. Um, as I say, we've made some good progress, still a hell of a lot more to do in some specific areas of the council. Myself and the new chief executive and my cabinet and the senior management team are focusing in a lot of detail of how we um, effectively complete all of those things that the commissioners are expecting from us so that they can leave because actually we want to make sure that that intervention ends because the best place people to take the decisions about the city of Liverpool are those people that the people of Liverpool have elected to do that on their behalf. 
Thank you for that. That makes a lot of sense. The business community are saying nice things about you. They feel now there's a future in Liverpool. What are you going to be doing with the business community? I think one of the things I'm very, very conscious of is that the business community, particularly in recent terms, has felt that the council has been a bit unwood-looking having to deal with all of its kind of uh, difficulties and its challenges. But the thing I'm very, very conscious of is that the council always has to be outward-looking to the people of the city, of which the business community is a huge, vital component part. So, genuinely, one of the things I'm doing at this moment in time is making sure I'm going around all those kind of key strong sort of anchor institutions of the business community, making sure that they know that my door literally is always open to them and we want to have that kind of two-way dialogue. So it's about re-establishing the relationship, but we don't want this to be all about talk because that's talk's easy. It has to boil down to action. Some of the things that we want to start working through with the business community are about things like our industrial strategy that we've got as a city and a region. We've got some huge... Uh, economic strengths in this city. Visitor economy, we know about, and we need to keep on building on that. Life sciences is absolutely huge when we think about the kind of exceptional hospitals, scientific institutions we've got, like the School of Tropical Medicine, the universities, some of the businesses we've got in the life sciences industry, particularly down in Speak, these are providing really good quality, well-paid jobs that we can grow and have more of those for kind of local people. So how do we shout about more of those? We mentioned about ports and the logistics industry. Again, something that's very specific to our city and our wider region. That's another kind of economic strength for us. And we've got some exceptional manufacturing facilities across the, the region. Those are ones I'm picking on that lots of people probably know about. Lots of your listeners might not know that we're one of the national leaders for immersive digital content. So things like the design of things like computer games and virtual reality. Again, exceptional kind of skilled jobs that we want to make sure that young people across our city not only know about, but have also linked in through schools, through our skills strategy and training, that they can actually then kind of compete for those jobs and get them because that gives them a great kind of future of a skilled job that's well paid, that means they can build their lives in our city in the way that they want to. So really having that close relationship with business about how we can build that. Then in terms of the sort of skills agenda, particularly working with the colleges and the schools with businesses to make sure that we're training our kids to give them the kind of the best skills they need to get those jobs and succeed, basically. And let's not forget the film industry, which brings in a great deal Absolutely. Of no, I think one of the things we should always be dead proud of is how much kind of filming happens in the city, how the city has... Yeah, in the right way, posed as New York, Washington, Birmingham, all these different kind of cities. And it's certainly something we want to grow, uh, grow and continue to, to strengthen. Obviously, there's the huge potential of the depot that's already starting on Edge Lane, the way that can scale up to be the film studios within, film studios within the Littlewoods building on Edge Lane. And you think about how iconic a building that is, and particularly because it's on one of the key arteries into the city, how... Getting that regenerated uh, can be a real statement for people coming in and out of the city. It can project confidence. 
huge potential there. I think one of the things we do now by growing the film industry locally for every pound that is spent on the film industry within the city, it can generate about 18 pounds of economic good that can come from that. So it's not just the job opportunities um, actually when you're doing the filming and there's huge potential for those kind of ancillary um, supply chain roles, you know, cameramen and, and other things like that. It's also the spend within the kind of local business community, you know, people actually going into the restaurant and the shops to get their kind of lunch and things like that. Huge kind of economic multiplier for us and it's something that's already a strength we want to kind of build much more upon. With this job and working with the the trains before, have you found, because it's a different world we're living in now, that social media is not making your job easy or is it helping? Um, Look, I think kind of you've got to look at social media as being um, as empowering as it is. Um, because it allows you to kind of reach many more people than you perhaps would have done through more conventional uh, media uh, roles. That doesn't mean it's, it's there to supplant you know, what you'll see on radio, television, in the print media, but it gives an, a really good uh, individual sort of tool, and it can be a two-way thing uh, in a way that certainly kind of more traditional forms of media the opportunities were limited. You can only get a certain number of people to write into a newspaper, for example, whereas social media can lead to a much deeper conversation. So it's a huge uh, empowering role. I think what worries me, though, is it's about making sure there's the right regulation around social media, which isn't about censorship and controlling people, but it is really concerning when you get uh, false information being floated that leads to panic in certain circumstances, particularly in instances where you see manipulated by nefarious elements, and I'm being extremely polite, like the far right, that's where it can become quite uh, dangerous. So I think it's about getting the regulation right uh, around that. But social media is there, and, and we've got to keep on embracing it because it's another tool of keeping, not just informed, people informed, but crucially getting their thoughts and their views and their perspective. I think the the thing we've always got to remember is it's a bit of a straw poll. It is not necessarily an exact reflection of how people are feeling as well. So. What's your thoughts on uh, AI? Um, I think, again, that, and this is where there's an opportunity around the fact that it's an emerging technology and there's the ability to actually put the right processes and regulations in place before it becomes... Uh, too big for his own boots, if you like. There could be a huge potential that can become really empowering and it can make people's lives uh, much more kind of um, easier uh, than than perhaps it, it, things have been. I think the key thing is, though, you certainly don't want to get into this dystopian world, um, almost like a, a Terminator film, where kind of robots become smarter than us and take over. Yeah, that That would be problematic if that was ever uh, to crystallise. And again, when I say problematic, I'm being dead polite. Um, I think the other element is that how do we use kind of those technological benefits as a means of kind of giving people a better quality of life, not supplanting people's employment that leads to people being out of work. It should be empowering, it shouldn't be an alternative because that leads to another real problematic world where most people are are pushed out of the labour market and without the right kind of policy uh, interventions potentially pushed into hardship. Liam, what upsets me now um, with any politician, and it's not the politicians, I'll give the example which I use all the time, football managers. Whatever team it is, if they don't 
do the job within four, four matches, they're ready to be sacked. Is this not a problem with politics these days? And isn't it a scary thing for young people to come into politics with social media against, where everybody we're living in a world now where they want it now? And you know that job you've got is not now. It can't be now. Yeah, and, and I think I'll, I'll use a kind of another football analogy, uh, Pete, when I say I'm very conscious you're only as good as your last game uh, in this. And it's one of the reasons why I'm very conscious in the role that I'm doing. I always have to kind of project things in a professional way, not just because that's what I believe is the right way to do personally. I'm very conscious I'm doing this role on behalf of half a million people that live in the city of Liverpool, so I should always be showing the city in its very best light at every occasion. So, you know, you can't afford to let your standards slip. And if you make a mistake, and everybody does, then be dead honest about it, and it's how you kind of fix that that mistake. Um, Again, I'd go back to my earliest comments about I've always seen politics as a calling, not a career. So I'm not kind of... Whilst I would like to to do this role for a good few years and hopefully make a big difference, I'm also not kind of charting out some long-distant plan and career because I know that that politics isn't like that and you shouldn't ever approach it that way. You should always just do your very, very best once you've got the opportunity. I do think politics unfortunately can be a bear pit you know you're absolutely right because of the way that kind of social media can be quite invasive and it can be difficult to metaphorically shut the door when you go home of a night um i think on a personal level i'm really lucky that i'm quite good at compartmentalizing and when i go home to the family i've got two little kids for example who kind of rightfully bring you down to earth uh, and that's quite a good sort of way of, of of riding that that out um, so yeah, politics can be can be difficult, but um, I think you've got to accept it as the uh, the responsibility that it that it is actually. So. To finish off, um, Liam, I've got to ask, what are your dreams for the the city? Oh wow, where where do you want to start? Take your time. Uh, Take your time. Look, I, I this think, is the last question. Yeah, I, I think that, look, huge potential for this city. You know, kind of it is as you've already pointed out, one of the most beautiful places uh, in the world. World-round waterfront, world-renowned kind of architecture in, in the city centre. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant people who are genuinely. And I'm, I wasn't born and bred here, so I'm not kind of. Um, saying this other than I believe it are the most friendly you'll find in the world and that kind of is something really really special that doesn't mean people in other places aren't friendly but I almost think it's on another level here so some of the kind of key ingredients we've got here are huge um, and the potential is massive the reputation internationally of the city is exceptional as good as anywhere in this country and the only place like London that people have heard more of than, than Liverpool. And that's taken a long time. That's taken a long time. Absolutely. Look, that's taken centuries actually to build when you think about the, the kind of history of it and how we've got to keep on on renewing that. So in terms of what would the sort of dreams be, I think it's how we kind of bring the city back into its its prominence at the maximised level. How are we seen as the second city of Britain and ultimately the most prominent city in Britain on a, a kind of uh, international footprint? Equally, how are we seen much more prominently nationally, where I do think there is still some way to go. We, we aren't, for a whole host of reasons, always uttered in that 
next bracket after London, and we deserve to be and we should be. How do we get into that um, space? I think there's huge economic potential. We talked about all those different sectors we could um, build upon. I honestly think devolution could be huge for us when I look at kind of other global cities uh, around the world of similar sizes to us, places like Barcelona, places like Hamburg. If we could have some of that power, what could we, could we do uh, as an international uh, city? One of the things we've got an obligation to do, actually, is look at the health disparities across the city. Um, I mentioned about these great kind of health assets we've got as a city, and we've got some wonderful places um, that you know, anyone who's looking to build a really strong career in health and life sciences should be looking to come and spend some good time in, in Liverpool. But how can we use those assets really to improve the kind of awful health kind of inequalities we've got in the city? It's not can't be acceptable that a child that will be born in the women's hospital today, Pete, if they go back to a house in Kirkdale, is likely to live 12 years less than if they go back to a house in Childwall. It's only five miles as the crow flies. So anything we could try to do to kind of reduce that gap um, is something that I think we have an obligation to keep on um, tackling. So it's hard how job. we could... Hard job. And I know that in a four-year term, I alone won't achieve that. But I know it's something we've all got to put our shoulder on the wheel. And there has been lots of good work over many years. I'm not suggesting that it, it's, it's something that's been unchallenged. But I do think that's one of the kind of key things we've got to be focusing on. Again, some of the kind of ambitions about how can we build a lot more housing. I, I find it heartbreaking about how... Lots of local people really struggle to find a good quality house they can afford um, that means that they end up having to kind of move further afield than they would like to. That's a huge role that I do think we can make a big dent in within four years. We could build a good few thousand more houses and that isn't a, uh, an empty pledge. That's something I know is definitively manageable but we know we'd have to do even more to kind of keep up with the demand that we, we require. So I think those are the kind of component parts that we can, we can do. And then there's some huge regenerational schemes that would be wonderful to see them come to full fruition. When you look to the North Docks, Everton Stadium is, is a key component with that, but there's the potential to develop that wonderfully into a really good mixed-use um, regenerational project that includes good, strong visitor and commercial activity, but some really good quality housing as well that could bring that whole corridor all the way up to Bootle into kind of uh, back to use as some really good, strong, long-term communities. So there's all those different bits, to be honest. Sorry, um, there's something I've got to throw into that yeah. as well, um, which I'm very interested to hear what you say. One of the most amazing things in Liverpool to me has always been Chinatown. Absolutely yep. But it seems chaos there now because we've had that empty land. We've had yep. builders coming in, closed. Builders coming in, closed. Is there any future there? There has to be. There's been lots of, I'll politely say, false starts uh, around that. But when you think about kind of as the oldest sort of dragon city in this country, for example, you think about our wonderful arch how are we supporting the sort of rejuvenation of Chinatown? Some wonderful businesses there, but we need to do a lot more around it. And certainly kind of as we go around the city, looking at a lot of the stalled projects that we've got, um, that will have to feature as one of the kind of strong locations we could deliver so much more from. I think there's also an opportunity as well 
in the sense with the opening of the new um, Liverpool Baltic station, as we're, we're going to call it, and everything that's been happening around the Baltic. And the reason I say that is because whereas Chinatown could have been perceived as being on the edge of town, actually will now start to be between the city centre and, and the Baltic. another burgeoning yeah. district. So it was going to be on the way for lots of people passing through. So that gives it a huge opportunity as a key area we can regenerate. Much like there's areas like the Fabric District, you know, that London Road area, where there's lots of kind of burgeoning talent from a variety of different businesses there, that with the right support and the right focus, we can bring that back into being a really vibrant area as well. So to finish off, your message to the people who are listening, and you've got to give, we've got to give you some time. It can't happen overnight. No, it can't happen overnight, but genuinely, my role is to work for the people of the city. And, you know, kind of, I'm always really keen to hear people's thoughts, views and perspectives. Tell us where you think we're doing it well, but by the same token, if you don't think we're doing it well, please tell us and we will kind of um, obviously uh, reflect on that and see how we can, we can deal with that. But... I think where the huge potential lies, as I said throughout the interview, Pete, is that we know this is the best city in the world. We've got an obligation as the council. I've got a particularly big obligation as the leader of the council to do our very, very best to deliver for the people of the city. But if we can all pull together as a city and a wider region, and I know we can, we can achieve some huge, globally significant significant things because we already have capital culture being one example, Eurovision being a, a recent example. What more can we do? What more will we do? Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Why not subscribe? You know it's free. So join us and tell your friends. It's great going on walks and doing whatever you want to do and then putting P Price on. We've got a back catalogue of over 100 interviews. Join us. Subscribe. It's free.